You're listening to In My Father's House with our pastor and teacher, Mike Fenizio, Senior Pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in New York City, New York. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be, oh, my heart will not be troubled. I remember what you said. Samuel died, and David arose. So what's the point, and what am I trying to suggest? Well, I believe that God continues and sustains his work. It's not dependent upon one uh, man, and, uh, and that's always the case. When God is finished with one individual, he just raises up another. And there's no constraints with, with God to do what God wants to do. Due to our fallen nature, each and every one of us succumbs to the diminishing effects of sin as we grow older and eventually pass. When it comes to our leaders and those we look up to, we sometimes can't help but get anxious or worried about their replacement. However, as Pastor Mike will teach you in his message today, God's work isn't limited to any certain individual. In his study, you'll learn that as one passes on, God raises up another to continue in their stead and faithfully serve the Lord. Now here's Pastor Mike in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 25 as he begins his message, The Power of Influence. move into 1 Samuel chapter 25. So things are kind of winding down. And if you're wondering where we're going to be going from here, guess what? There's another book. It's called 2 Samuel. So as we complete our series and close it out in 1 Samuel, we're just going to continue and move into the next book of the Bible. Uh, In that order, we'll be in 2 Samuel. This message, the title is The Power of Influence. And guess what? Each and every one of us in Christ has the power to influence others for him. And so that's what we're going to be talking about and the importance of acknowledging and recognizing that truth and allowing God to use you in that uh, way. So we're in 1 Samuel chapter 25. Okay, so let's get right to it. Appropriately, let's begin in verse 1. So chapter 25, 1 Samuel, verse 1. Then Samuel died, and the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him, and buried him at his home in Ramah, and David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Okay, so Samuel, the prophet of God, shortly after David had spared King Saul's life at Engedi. remember last time we talked about that, remember Engedi was a hill kind of a area uh, that was dotted with these many uh, caves, And uh, upon that particular occasion, Saul, the king of Israel, went into this uh, particular cave. Now remember, Saul was 
seeking to track down David to put him to death. He thought that David was behind this conspiracy uh, to unseat him from the throne and replace him as the king uh, over uh, Israel. So anyway, in his pursuit, Saul went into this particular cave to relieve himself, that is to go to the bathroom, not knowing that in that particular cave, David and his men were hiding in its recesses. So Saul is, you might say, exposed, extremely vulnerable, and David could have plunged his sword into Saul's back at this time, but nevertheless, he chose not to do that. Why was that? Remember, we talked about this last time. Because he knew that Saul, the king, was God's anointed. How that God had placed him in that position as king over Israel. So David knew that it wasn't his call to put an end to his being over the kingdom. So anyway, just a little bit of background information of what's going on here. So shortly after David spared King Saul's life there at En Gedi, we are told here, according to verse 1, that Samuel went home to be with the Lord. And Bible scholars have estimated that Samuel lived to be 96 years old. So think about that. Samuel had served God and his countrymen successfully and faithfully for nine decades. Remember, his mother, Hannah, had uh, petitioned the Lord and prayed. Remember, she was barren. She was unable to give birth to a child, and so she prayed earnestly and, and uh, without immediate results. But then she finally realized what God wanted to do with that child that she would give birth to, and that, of course, was Samuel the great uh, prophet, she kind of entered into an agreement with God and said, God, if you open up my womb and I'm able to bear a child to my husband, I will give that child back to you. And so after the child was weaned and over a short period of time, remember Samuel was brought to the high priest at that time, his name was Eli, and he served as Eli, the high uh, priest's uh, protege and assistant. So at an early age. So for over now, think about that, nine decades, he successfully and faithfully uh, served his countrymen. But now his work is over. You know, it, there's something interesting here, and, and I, this is my own personal opinion, and I really can't back it up with anything, but I, I, I just thought that I, it would be worthy uh, to draw this uh, fact to your attention. Take a look at verse 1. Uh, once again, there are two interesting phrases that are recorded for us uh, there. It says, Samuel died, as I had just suggested. So that's the first phrase that I would like for us to consider. But then notice, secondly, we are told David arose. So quite a contrast. Samuel died and David arose. So what's the point? And what am I trying to suggest? Well, I believe that God continues and sustains his work. It's not dependent upon one uh, man. And, uh, and that's always the case. When God is finished with one individual, he just raises up another. And there's no constraints with, with God to do what God wants to uh, do. Well, anyway, Samuel's death appears to be a peaceful one. Spending his last years training his successors, his students in the school of the prophets, remember at Naioth in Ramah, 
and we were introduced to that school in chapter 19 in one of our previous uh, studies. Well, as news of his passing spread, people from throughout the land, all of Israel, came to Ramah to pay their respects and homage to Samuel. Notice, that's indicated by what's recorded first there in verse 1. They gathered together and lamented for him. You see, they realized that this was a great loss because of his moral excellence, his righteousness, his kindly nature, the godly influence this man had over the entire nation. And so, so they knew that Samuel would be sorely missed. You know, in a similar ways, I was thinking about a contemporary example, an illustration of this. So in similar ways, you know, I think of someone like Pastor Chuck Smith, who's had great influence on all of us in the Calvary Chapel movement. He impacted an entire generation uh, for Jesus Christ. You know, beginning in the late 60s and early 70s, that movement was known as the Jesus Movement. And uh, I don't know how many of you, you're a lot younger than I am, but I was a part of that, that movement. And so Pastor Chuck was greatly used by God uh, to reach that particular generation. But then also as another example of this, I think of someone like Billy Graham and the great influence he had over our nation for decades and how that he was an advisor to many presidents uh, during the times where they served as presidents of the United States of America. Listen, it is amazing to me what great power we can possess to affect others for God. Now, that's not only true of those who are on a national uh, stage, but it's also true of you and me as well. You see, our outlook, the words that we speak, the deeds that we do, can just alter people's lives for good or for bad. It's all a matter of the way that we conduct ourselves. And listen, this is probably most evident in our own homes. We can be positive or negative in our attitudes. We can be understanding or demanding, patient or intolerant, affirming or discouraging. The things we say and do to our spouses and our children shapes their character. And you know that to be true. You know, those of you who were raised in a Christian home, the influence that your mom and dad, uh, Christians, had upon you. But then some of us, unfortunately, were raised in homes where maybe uh, a father was absent or you had a very difficult time with your moms and dads. Maybe there were some other issues that they were dealing with. And, and uh, the consequences, the effect of that, uh, that those things had upon uh, children. And so anyway, the things we say and do to our spouses and children shapes their character and how true that is. Now, this is also true of the many people whose lives intersect with ours over a lifetime. And think about that. We can help those individuals, like, for example, people that we work at or, uh, with at our places of employment, the schools that we attend, uh, our fellow uh, students, uh, members of our immediate families, our brothers, our sisters, our cousins, our uncles, our aunts. And in that influence, we can help them form their understanding of who God is and how he is. Not only of who God is, but how he is. There are so many misconceptions about the true nature of a God. You know, many people think that God is some kind of an ogre, that he's just waiting for people to make a mistake so that he can beat them over the head with a club. 
Listen, that's not my understanding of who God is. God is patient. God is long-suffering. God is forgiving. God is love. The ultimate expression and description of who God is. God is love. So we have this great power to influence other people for Jesus Christ. Let me give you an example of this here from 1 Samuel. How about David? Think about the great influence that Samuel had upon David. Samuel was David's mentor. He was accountable to him. Samuel, Samuel was also David's advisor, his counselor, and he helped shape David's character. And so for his many deeds, that is Samuel, instituting the many spiritual reforms throughout the nation, turning the hearts of the people back to uh, God, for his deeds, and there were many, uh, his name rightly appears with the other heroes of the Bible, in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, which is known as the Hall of Fame chapter. And so what do we take away from all of this? Well, listen, if you want your life to really mean something, you know, really at the end of that life, know that you've contributed to encouraging and helping other people come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. If you want to possess stature, status, and position... And listen, you know, if you're involved in ministry, I mean, this is what we're all about. You know, the role of a pastor is to influence and encourage people to bring them to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that also includes stature, status, and position. You know, individuals that people look up to as our lives being true. Well, then we need to incorporate truth, justice, compassion, and we need to exercise that powerful influence, that positive influence on other uh, people. Now, with Samuel's death, David experienced a new sense of fear. Remember, he's still on the run. Saul is still seeking to track him down, take his life from him. And so, with Samuel's death, David experienced a new sense of fear. Why was that? Because even Samuel had influence over Saul the king. But now his influence has been removed. And thus David felt it necessary to remove himself from the king as far as he possibly could. So notice as, it is, as is indicated in verse 1, David and his men flee into the wilderness of Paran. And there, as we are about to discover, as we continue to move through this chapter, David and his men become protectors of the people in that area. Protectors from whom? Well, from the raids by the Philistines, from the Amalekites, and from Bedouin tribesmen. Uh, all of which is referred to as fighting the battles of the Lord there in verse 28 of the same chapter. We'll get to that in just a moment. Now, at this point, we are introduced to a man whose name is Nabal. And he is quite a contrast from Samuel. Okay, let's go back to our chapter now, verses 2 and 3. Now, there was a man in Moon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, during the time where they sheared the sheep, that was considered a harvest celebration, a harvest uh, time. It was a time of great celebration. 
you know, for God's bounty and God's blessing. Verse 3, the name of the man was Nabal, which, by the way, is literally a translated fool. And as we are, which, let me tell you something, he really lived up to that name, as we are about to, to discover here. The name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beauty, so she was a looker, uh, a beautiful appearance. But the man, Nabal, was harsh and evil in his doings, and he was of the house of uh, Caleb. Now, the word Caleb can literally translate, be translated dog, and uh, so the idea here is that he had a canine kind of a disposition. And so we were introduced to this uh, character here uh, in our text. And what are we told? Well, we are told that Nabal was wealthy. He was cruel. He was unscrupulous. Someone who abused the power that was created by his wealth. Now, I just want to stop here for a moment and mention, and you, you know this, that there are four different kinds of riches. There are riches in what you have, riches in what you do, riches in what you know, and riches in what you are. That is, riches of character. Well, Nabal was a very rich man, according to our text, but only in what he had. You see, he had the lowest kind of uh, riches. Okay, so anyway, let's go back now to our, our text. And, uh, but then also notice here, in those few verses that I just read, his wife Abigail, in contrast, was a beauty. She was wise, and she was gracious. And you know what? I, you know, I have a hard time wrapping my head around this because I don't know how she could have hooked up with a guy like Nabal. Maybe this was the result of some kind of an arranged marriage, and so she had no say in the matter. Uh, also, back then, culturally, if uh, you owed a debt to a person, you could offer them your daughter in marriage to you know, satisfy that debt. So maybe... Those are the possible explanations we really don't uh, know. But also, let me suggest uh, F.B. Meyer, who in his commentary on 1 Samuel uh, said, and I want to uh, share that with you, it is remarkable how many Abigails get married to Nabals. And let me tell you something, I've spent a good part of my ministry over these many years counseling husbands and wives who are having problems in their marriage relationship. And more times than not, it's usually the problem is with the husband, who's not treating his wife the way that he should be treating her, not providing for the family the way that God intended him to provide for the family, not being the kind of an example, a Christian example, that God wanted the husband to be to his wife and to his uh, children. And so there are many Abigails that are at there, out there exactly like this. God-fearing women, tender and gentle in their sensibilities, high-minded and noble in their ideals, and yet become tied in an unbreakable union with men for whom they can have no true infinity, even if they have not 
and unconquerable repugnance. If you are in that kind of situation, and I don't expect that anyone here in our facility, I don't know exactly who's watching on, online, but if you find yourself in that kind of a situation, maybe there will come to you one day, as there came to Abigail, as we'll see here as we continue to move on through this chapter, a new opportunity. You know, maybe God has you in that marriage relationship to influence your husband for Jesus Christ, to win him for Jesus Christ. We really don't know. But we'll discover that there came a opportunity, a new opportunity for Abigail. But until then, it is for you, women, I'm addressing the wife now, to prove the grace and power of the Lord in your heart to strengthen you and keep you in that marriage relationship. So just an encouragement. So if you're having a really bad time in your marriage relationship, keep your eyes and focus in on the Lord. Do everything that you could possibly do to influence your husband for Jesus Christ. Maybe it'll get better. Or maybe the guy will just pack up his bags, as many of these guys do, and they'll just get out of there. And uh, one way or another, you can be sure that God will honor your commitment to do the right thing. So be sure of, of that. Well, again, I don't know exactly how it was that she hooked up with this guy, but nevertheless she did. Now, because, let's go back to our text. Now, because of the size of Nabal's flocks, we are told 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats, their grazing area extended to where David and his men had assumed the protection of that uh, area. And thus, they watched out for Nabal's property as well. So at the time of the shearing of the sheep, David was looking for some rightful compensation, and that was, in his, uh, that was by the way, in perfect keeping within that culture. Okay, let's pick up now in this chapter, and let's read verses 4 through 9. When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men, and I just want to make note of that, David didn't go himself. You know, David's fame had preceded him now. Everyone throughout the land knew who David was. So he sent ten men, uh, rather than him going to Nabal himself, to make his plea. Why? Because he didn't want to intimidate Nabal into giving him the compensation that was due him. That is for his protection. So instead, according to our text, he sent, verse 5, he sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, so he's instructing them on what to say, go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him, who lives in prosperity, peace be to you, peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. Notice they were to greet him in full warmth and tenderness. In my father's house, there's a place for me. In my father's house, where I long to be. First oh, Samuel takes you from the pastures that David shepherded to Saul's palace, where David played his harp. It walks you through the battles that were won and lost, and it touches on one of the most unique friendships in the whole Bible. To say this book is interesting is an understatement. There are so many lessons to be learned from reading 1 Samuel. 
Ultimately, we're reminded that people wanted a human king. But no ruler or leader on earth will be perfect and they'll make many mistakes. Only God is perfect and is the very best king. Thanks for listening today. You can explore more of Pastor Mike's messages by searching for In My Father's House on your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to subscribe. If you're looking for a place in Midtown Manhattan to come together with others and worship Jesus, we'd love to have you join us this Sunday for worship at Harvest Christian Fellowship. You'll be able to reserve your seat and get directions at harvestnyc.org. We're also streaming each Sunday and Thursday service so everyone has the chance to attend and worship as a community of believers. If this broadcast is an encouragement to you, would you consider supporting us? We'd love your prayerful support. And if you feel led, we're also thankful for any financial support. In fact, you can donate securely on our website, harvestnyc.org. Thanks for listening in today, and we hope you'll join us again next time as Pastor Mike teaches on 1 Samuel, here on In My Father's House.